Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. A lot of us have grown up accustomed to extreme weather events after watching them occur year after year. Tornadoes and hurricanes, for example. But underneath it all, we know our Earth is changing. Our hurricanes may look and feel the same way they did 100 years ago, but our rising sea levels are making the impacts to human life and property much worse. Senior Research Associate at the University of Miami, Brian McNoldy, has been studying the relationship and how it will affect one of the country's largest population centers in South Florida. Brian, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. My pleasure. Very, very happy to be here, Marshall. Well, I, you know, as I was telling you, and for those listening, Brian McNoldy is just, he's been one of these, gotta get him on Weather Geeks guests, just sort of sort of, you have this wish list of guests, and he's one of those uh, outstanding colleagues, someone that I admire and follow carefully for his work that he does in our field, particularly as it relates to hurricanes. He's one of my go-to experts whenever I need a quote or want to see the latest information on the hurricane season. And we'll get to that in the conversation. But the first question out of the gate is one that every Weather Geeks guest gets. How did you become a Weather Geek? Uh, I, I think perhaps like many of the others, I don't know that there ever was a becoming one. I think <laughs> uh, a lot of us, I guess, if, if we're in that, um, if, if we're put in that category, we, we've been one for as long as we can remember. Um, I can remember a couple specific events, though, that really got my interest and caught my interest. Um, one was a significant snowstorm in the Northeast. I grew up in Southeast Pennsylvania and uh, we got a very uh, major nor'easter in 1983. So I, I was a fairly young chap at the time and that just impressed me because the snow was about as high as I was tall. <laughs> right. And uh, then the, the hurricane part came about two years later, was, uh, which was another significant event in the Northeast was Hurricane Gloria in uh, 1985, and that that really got my interest in hurricanes. Because even though the the core of Gloria was, remained offshore, uh, we still got fairly significant wind and rain, and you know we had no school because it was my only hurricane day from school living in the Northeast. Right. Um, so at that point on, it was pretty much infatuated with them and wanting to track them. But uh, tracking them back in the, the 80s was a lot harder. You couldn't just go online and look things up. You had to work for it. <laughs> you had to go get those charts from the grocery store from your local TV meteorologist and track. I know people still do that, but I, I, I joke about that because I actually did that. I would track the hurricanes manually and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to give the, the listeners sort of your background uh, now that we've kind of heard your grounding in weather geekdom. Uh, Brian's a senior research associate at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences, and he's been there since 2012. And Weather Geeks producer Heather Zahns is an alumni from there, and so she says hi. 
Brian maintains a blog on tropical Atlantic activity and has done so since 1996. I highly recommend, and hopefully we'll get the link or a connection to it later in this podcast, highly recommend his blog. It's quite good. He's also been a tropical weather expert with the Washington Post Capital Weather Game since 2012, so be sure you check out his work there. He worked at Colorado State University's Department of Atmospheric Sciences in the early 2000s, conducting research on a variety of topics, specializing in tropical cyclone. He even held an internship at NASA Goddard in 1997. Uh, Wow, I, I think I would have been there at that time as well. I don't know if we crossed paths, but I certainly was there at the time. Uh, He has a BA in physics and astronomy from Lycoming College in Williamsport, PA, the home of the Little League World Series, I believe. That's right. And a master's degree in atmospheric sciences from Colorado State University. So um, an interesting pathway to get where you've uh, gotten to today. I want to dive into some of your research at Miami and some of the other things. Before I do that, I I just want to pause and reflect. We're, we're, We're recording this in late December, and we had quite the hurricane season. I I just want to get some of your reflections. It's what I consider one of the the best uh, contemporary experts in tropical cyclones out there right now. Give me some of your reflections on the 2020 hurricane season. What what things stood out to you, stunned you, surprised you? Sure. That's a a great question. And I'm sure uh, a lot of people are going to be looking into this season for many years to come. It's kind of in that uh, 2005 genre of in, in ultra season, I guess you, you might call it. There's, it was essentially two normal seasons packed into one. It was just crazy. Uh, the amount of activity there was, um, unlike 2005 though. And, and I, I compare it to 2005 because of the sheer number of storms that were out there. We actually broke the record, um, that 2005 had set. No, we, we had 30 this year, right? That, that That's was right. Yeah. Um, so we went well into the Greek alphabet for only the second time ever. Um, and I think for the first time ever, we're now kind of wondering what do we do about these Greek named storms and could they be retired even though they're not technically names, they're just parts of the alphabet, <laughs> letters of the, of the Greek alphabet. So can you retire a, a, a letter of the alphabet? Uh, but we you know, there were quite a few very significant um, hurricanes that came late in the season. In fact, the strongest of the season was the last one. <laughs> um, in, in November, go figure. Yeah, yeah. That was the one and only c- Category 5 hurricane of the season in November. Um, I think another thing that stood out aside from the number of storms was we didn't really see it was kind of where they were, I think is, is where I'm going with that is there was a large concentration of them in the Western Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. Um, an unusually large number of them, even, even, you know, when we know how many there were, you don't usually have that fraction of storms be located there. Um, and to go along with that was an absence of hurricanes in the deep tropics from the central Caribbean all the way to Africa. There was one hurricane that was, that uh, was a hurricane while in that location. So one out of, <laughs> out of all of those. Um, what, what do you think the physical, I mean, I, I, that's a question that perhaps maybe you, you or others will look into in the research world, but was there something about the overall pattern, the position of the, uh, the Bermuda or the Atlantic high, the steering currents? What, what, what are your thoughts, the, the pools of water warmer in those locations? 
Yeah, I, I have to admit, I don't have an answer yet. Um, I don't know if others do yet, but um, I don't think it was just the sea surface temperatures because they were warm, even warmer than average across the deep tropics as well. Um, so the lack of hurricane activity through the deep tropics uh, is not explained by that. We did have a weak La Nina, and typically during a La Nina, uh, it tends to enhance Atlantic tropical cyclone activity uh, through um, less vertical wind shear, basically through the deep tropics. So anything that might have not formed during a neutral or El Nino year might just be allowed to form during a La Nina year because of that slightly lower wind shear on average. Um, but that again, doesn't totally explain why the deep tropics from the central Caribbean to Africa were relatively, um, quiet in terms of hurricane activity. Um, yeah, that's a so I think it, yeah, I, I think it has to be some other sort of atmospheric signal or oscillation, uh, that, people will continue to look into, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think so as well. I, I heard some people asking about the Madden Julian oscillation. And, you know, for those that Weather Geeks listeners that may not be sort of immersed in the field the way Brian and I are, there are all kinds of modes and, and, and natural variability on top of what is likely a, an anthropogenic climate change signal, which I want to ask you about in a second. Uh, these, you know, you know, you've got this large scale Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation where you enter these active and weak periods and they last for, you know, years to decades. But then you have these sort of La Nina and El Nino and you have the Matt Julian oscillations and quasi biennial. There are all kinds of oscillations. And so uh, the alphabet soup of oscillations out there is <laughs> worth a, 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 a summer study for those that are just inclined. But I, one of the things that really, you know, caught me by surprise, in addition to the number of storms, as you mentioned, in, say, Louisiana, as opposed to none hardly in Florida, except maybe one or a couple, is the number of rapidly intensifying storms. And um, there, there are quite a few, uh, not just this year, but in recent years. And that certainly the literature bears out, seems to be a signal of perhaps climate change. Also, Sally, as I recall, was one, another one of these storms that kind of slow, slowed down, stalled out, produced quite a bit of rain. So where I'm going with this, are, are, you know, I'm going to drop this sort of um, grenade into the discussion, if you will. Um, do you believe that climate change is having an impact on this generation of hurricanes? Or are we starting to enter that generation where climate change DNA is there in the, in the storms? I think it is. And that's a great way to have it framed, I think, is that um, it's it's in there, it's in, as you said, kind of in the DNA of, of hurricane seasons now, uh, but there's a lot of other factors. So it's, it is a player, um, but I, I would always caution against associating any active hurricane season or rapidly intensifying hurricane or, you know, any thing of that scale, a single storm, a single season, anything like that, I would strongly caution against associating that with climate change. Because then the contrary happens, say we have an inactive year next year, um, that does not in any way discredit the influence of climate change. There's e enormous ups and downs each year um, in nature, just for whatever reasons, as we just uh, mentioned, there's 
there's an oscillation for, for every combination of letters you can think of. <laughs> and they, they come in and out of phase and they create active seasons and inactive seasons. Um, but in the background is this trend. And that's, that's where the, the climate change part comes in is it's, it's acting to change the, the, uh, the baseline for things. So you still got these, crazy oscillations that happen on top of each other. Um, and they're going to keep happening, but you're gradually changing the baseline on which those oscillations are acting. Right. So it, yeah, I, I think it, we do see the signal of climate change and things like this, but I would not say that the 2020 hurricane season was, because of climate change. Exactly. And that's the best way to put it. And where the current literature is, I think a lot of people often get this wrong. People who very much know that climate change is real and likely impacting the season. You often hear people say, oh, yeah, we're going to have more storms and they're going to be stronger. Well, the literature suggests that we may not have more storms, but when they do, on average, they'll be stronger. So I highly recommend the NOAA Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab's hurricane and global warming page if you want the current and updated insight on where we are on that. Um, Brian, now I want to pivot to your own research. Um, you do research focus on hurricanes and sea level at the University of Miami. And by the way, proud Florida State alumni here, but I'm talking to a good uh, University of Miami uh, hurricane. <laughs> you know, I joke lightly about that because those are, I was a big time rival when I was at FSU. But Tell us a little bit, give us a little intro, and we're going to dig deeper, but give us a little intro before the first break into sort of what your portfolio of research is there at the University of Miami. Sure. Um, I, I, um, I work for three research groups, three, three people who, who lead research groups. And so my, the, 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 um, the things that I end up looking at reflect you know, the projects that, that they have. And it's kind of, it's nice for me because I, I, I have a lot of interests. So it, it works out well that, you know, there's, there's people who might get a grant in X, Y, and Z, and I'm more than content to be working on X, Y, and Z because I like all those. And then some, <laughs> um, it does tend to revolve around hurricanes in one way or another, either, um, I've, uh, you know, run hurricane models, I've validated model output with, uh, you know, real measurements that, that are made either by aircraft or, you know, something else. Um, looking at some aspects of remote sensing, uh, done that. Um, uh, project recently. What that's kind of hurricane models are you running? Is it just the H wharf or are you just doing uh, larger scale models or? I have primarily, as far as running, I've primarily run wharf, which is okay. the, just the non hurricane wharf. Sure, the regular wharf. Yeah. Um, and then H wharf I've used. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've used the, uh, the uh, out, out, output from, from H wharf quite a bit and looking at that and, you know, whatever, biases it, it might have and things like that. Okay. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? 
Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with uh, Brian McNulty, who's a, a scientist and researcher at the University of Miami, very well known for his work in the, the realm of hurricanes and tropical cyclones. He also tracks something. One thing, I, Brian's an excellent follow on Twitter, by the way. If you don't follow him on Twitter, make sure you do. Um, I, I'm going to deviate here a little bit, and then we'll come back to your, the things you, you do. But you've been tracking the heat <laughs> in Miami. You live in South Florida. And I, I noticed that you you talk a lot about sort of the the, the heat. Right? I mean, I think people associate Florida and South Florida with being hot, but you all have been doing dealing with some anomalous heat over the last year. Or so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think you know, regardless of where you live, you have a history. You have what your, your average is. You have your record. So whether you're in Montana or Florida, it doesn't matter. You know, if you, so so here in in South Florida. Sure, it is warmer than most places in the continental U.S., um, but we still have been breaking record heats. In fact, 2020 is well in line to be the, the hottest year on record again. Um, we've accomplished that record uh, in 2019, 17, and 15. <laughs> so to keep breaking records almost year after year, um, it's it's impressive. It's not easy to break a record when you have a history that goes you know 120 years back. Um, so to to be breaking a record in a a, a record warm uh, is is impressive when you're already somewhere that's warm. So yes, it, it's been hot. Um, what about rain? What about rain? Yeah. You got some interesting precipitation sort of activity as well. Absolutely. Um, so the, the, the official station at Miami International Airport is not quite at record status yet, but it's close. And with the last three weeks of the year typically are dry, so I doubt we're going to hit that record. Uh, at my house, though, we're at about 98 inches for the year. 98 which, inches. Yes. That wow. is um, far beyond anything in my time here. Right. Um, and it's quite a bit more than Miami International Airport has gotten. If, if they had gotten that, it would be a record, uh, but they didn't. And my house is not an official station, but <laughs> I, I, I do measure uh, quite religiously each each morning. So it's a pretty accurate count. <laughs> yeah. And you're a meteorologist. You know, you know what you're doing. So I certainly put credibility in your observations. Now, talking about South Florida and the coastal regions, I think this area is just vulnerable to multiple threats of extremes, hurricanes. Uh, you just talked about flooding and heat. 
what have you been noticing in terms of sea level rise, uh, either in your own personal experiences and even in your own research? I mean, I know there are issues with sea level rise, sunny day flooding, saltwater intrusion into your water system. Tell us a little bit about the sea level problem there in this really vulnerable community. Yeah, this is this is really something that um, people just in their lifetimes have noticed. So it it, it brings that climate change uh, kind of um, phrase that some people are like, when is it going to happen or what's it going to be like? And it, it's when it's something that's very real to people, uh, it, it's not a, when is it going to happen? It's, it is happening. It has been happening. There's no on off switch to it. You know, it's um, it, it very gradually things change on the mean, you know, like I said before, there's always going to be years with ups and downs. And uh, I think, well, for example, the 2020 mean sea level here will be lower than the 2019 mean sea level. But you look at trends over even the past 25 years, um, we have seen an increase of about five and a half inches in the mean sea level here in Southeast Florida, just in the past 25 years. That's something people here can notice, even if you haven't lived here your whole life and you know, you're a 75 year old person, this is something who the people who have been here for just a few years can start to notice because it's a pretty flat area. We don't have mountains, we don't have any, you know, it's a very flat area. And if, if you're, if you're living at six feet above, above mean sea level, you're considered pretty high here. Uh, there's places of like Western, the West part of Miami beach is two to three feet. So those small changes are a big deal here. Yeah. It, from the two to three feet is about as, as low as it gets. Uh, the high points, if you want to call them hills or mountains, they're in the teens of feet. Um, and so when you have this, these really high tides that come about in the fall and you, you know, you might be running two feet above, above mean, um, streets flood, uh, water just comes up out of the drains and streets flood and it can last, you know, uh, around each high tide, you know, it feels flooded streets for a few hours uh, and that can last for a few days around the high, or around the new moons and the full moons. Um, so these are things that affect people's lives. I mean, the, the people are always asking about the so what's, but when your roads are flooding on sunny days and you have commutes and you've got salt water, you know, I know there's some issues with salt water intrusion there. I mean, I work yeah. with a colleague here at the University of Georgia from uh, Rosanna Rivera, who thinks about some of these vulnerability issues. I mean, I, I, I think people don't think about these things, but that impacts the rhythm of life in South Florida. It really does. Uh, in fact, when I, this, this year, of course, has been an odd year for having to uh, drive to work, but uh, it hasn't happened much. But back in the day when I did, uh, I would sometimes have to think about when high tide was, because there was a, uh, a route that I take that does flood just, you know, during, during the, the really high tides, and I'm not going to drive my car through it. So I take a different route all of those days. So, I mean, it's a very real thing. It changes and, uh, you know, it changes the way you behave it. And even if you 
do decide to drive th through it, it does mess up traffic because people come to a crawl to Absolutely. slowly plow their way through a flooded street. And so traffic gets much, much worse. What is it? I mean, I know I, I hear a lot of discussion about the king tide activity down there. And I think that yeah. you alluded to it. What are king tides? And are, are there, and I guess as you alluded to this, I guess they're, inc they're increasing trends in their activity. But for the listeners who may not be in Miami or Savannah or Jacksonville, what is a king tide? Yeah, so a king tide is kind of just an informal term. It just refers to the, the highest tides of the year. Um, and so they've always happened, of course, you, you know, that some, a location will always have its highest tide of the year. Um, and it's, it's a non-storm surge high tide. So we don't associate king tides with, you know, a hurricane or a nor'easter or anything like that. This is just the astronomical high tides. Um, and they tend to be in the fall in most places, um, just because that's when the, you have the most, uh, the, the, the most warm ocean, which is, which expands, you know, fluids, fluids expand when they're warmer and so the, the ocean actually does the same thing. So when the ocean is warmer, it is, uh, you get a higher tide from that, um, wind climatology, pressure climatology, all those things work to kind of just say fall is when you're going to have your king tide. Uh, and then it's going to be on a new or a full moon, almost certainly. Um, so it's, the, so we, we, we have always had king tides, uh, but again, kind of this, this goes back to what we were talking about with, with, uh, hurricanes before, um, as the mean sea level is increasing, the baseline is too. So there are oscillations in the ocean, just like there are in the atmosphere so that you have years that are higher and lower for other reasons. Um, but it's getting easier and easier to break record high tides and getting harder and harder to break record low tides. Um, and so on the mean, the, the, the trend is saying that whatever their, our king tide was 20 years ago, we're going to be higher than that now. And then, you know, looking forward to the future, our highest king tide in another five years is going to be higher than it is now and so on. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, speaking with Brian McNulty from the University of Miami, talking all about hurricanes, sea level rise, king tides, and many other things that I know Brian is up to. I want to circle back to hurricanes because something, a point came, comes to mind, because we mentioned that 2020 hurricane season, South Florida Florida in general didn't have as much activities one might expect it to have in an active season of 30 named storms. Are we in a period, do you feel, where 
residents in Miami and Florida and perhaps even other places are becoming a little more desensitized, or I guess what we call the hurricane amnesia because they haven't, I, I don't know. I don't remember the last time or South Florida had a, a major hurricane. I mean, I know Dorian got close. It was just hanging out there, but it never came. Uh, do you sense that on the ground from where you are? Or do you worry about this idea of hurricane and, and desensitization, if you will, because we haven't had activity in certain locations and you can broaden this beyond South Florida for sure. Um, I would say slightly. Uh, I, I don't think it's a huge problem here. I think people, with, when there is a hurricane threat a few days out, people take it quite ser seriously. Um, I, I don't tend to see a lot of people, you know, thinking, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. They don't ever hit here. You know, I, I don't hear a lot of that. Yeah. Um, we have gotten some close calls in recent years. Uh, we had. 2016 was Matthew, um, 2017 was Ir 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 Irma, and, and uh, so I, I can't, there I, I have to expand what I mean by South Florida, because Hurricane Irma did hit um, the Florida Keys as a Category 4 hurricane and then went up into to, to, to Southwest Florida. Here in Southeast Florida, it was not quite even at, at, at hurricane strength. The winds were not quite hurricane strength. They were far upper end tropical storm strength. And even that was quite ugly around here. <laughs> there's a lot of, it, 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 when you're at that wind speed, I think that's what people learn to appreciate what a hurricane is because even at upper tropical storm conditions, that trash trees, we lost electricity for a week, it, e enormous piles of tree wreckage and debris. And so, that one was a, a really big wake up call for people because we were absolutely at risk in Southeast Florida of a category four or five hurricane that was not looking unlikely. Um, so that one, that's, that's when I think really triggered people that, okay, this is for real. <laughs> this, yeah. this can absolutely happen here. Absolutely. Um, and then, yeah, you mentioned 2019 uh, hurricane, Dorian, um, and this year we had a we had two or three that yeah, maybe woke people up a little bit. No huge scares. Um, yeah, we got really lucky this year in South Florida. Uh, unfortunately, as I think we alluded to previously, the the uh, Gulf Coast up in Louisiana had the had the uh, the uh, unfortunate end of that of getting a lot of landfalls. Oh, the ne my, my next two questions are kind of get into the realm of sort of so what we, we talked about sea level rise. We talked about hurricanes and the combination of those, for example, can lead to uh, higher storm surge risk, I would imagine, or at least exacerbating storm surge risk with hurricanes. Do you have any thoughts just from your lens as someone that's well connected in the tropical world? Do you, the question becomes, well, what can we do? We know these things are happening or are going to continue to happen. Do we need, you know, massive infrastructure changes or do we need to start moving people from coal? I mean, what are you, do you, do you ever think about this aspect of the problem and do you have any thoughts? I, I do think about it. Um, and it's, it's a, probably one of the most significant problems that the world has right now is because it's not just Miami. It's not just the, the U S there's uh, all of our coastal cities in the world 
are going to be faced with this, with the rising seas problem. And if you're on a coast that's prone to hurricanes, you know, we, we, we add that part to it too. Um, and for basically as long as we've had these major coastal cities around the world, the, the, the sea level hasn't really changed that much. Um, it hasn't changed rapidly enough or by e e enough that in the course of 500 years, we've been concerned about this issue. Um, now all of a sudden that's changing and places up and down the U S East coast, West coast and around the world. Um, you know, if we're talking about feet of sea level rise in the next 100 years, that starts to become a really big problem of, okay, now we have all these big cities along the coast that were perfectly content for a hundred or 300 years or 500 years, depending on where you are in the world. Um, all of a sudden they're not as secure as they used to be. And you're going to have this issue of how do you either adapt to that and you know, try to move things to higher ground, um, raise things in place, or do kind of a gradual retreat and let the ocean claim what it will, and you gradually move people and infrastructure back in, into higher ground. It's all incredibly expensive and almost impossible to imagine um, the scale of this, but it's going to happen. So it's going to happen, and we have to do something about it. Even in that discussion, I've, I've read about some what I would call climate gentrification or reverse gentrification issues there in South Florida as yes. maybe more fluent people seek that high ground or perhaps and you know start driving people out. Is that a real issue? That is absolutely an issue. And I in my eight or nine years here now, I have seen it happen. I have seen neighborhoods that were, you know, relatively low in income neighborhoods that were you know, um, that were doing fine, basically. Everyone there was content. It, life, life went on. You just had what you had, and it was fine. I, I go through those neighborhoods all, all the time, and it's, it's fine. But they have changed and continue to change, and, and it's exactly that. It's the, the, uh, the, the more affluent areas used to be the ones that were right on the coast, but they get sick of the high tide flooding and everything that we were just talking about. And so they want to move that, you know, they don't want to move away from the whole, uh, Miami scene and, and all that, but they don't want to flood. So it just so happens that some of those lower income neighborhoods are on the higher ground and they're just being scraped and rebuilt with new things and they can't afford those new things. Uh, it's, it's just, it's really hard to see. It's, uh, to, in, like I said, in a matter of a few years, I've seen it happen. Whole neighborhoods just get scraped and changed forever. Yeah. And it's, I, I can't, it, 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 there's nothing you can do, but watch, you know, it's, it's really hard. Yeah, I, I brought it up because I think there are a lot of these kind of issues that we're going to have to think about carefully as we adapt and try to figure out, not just in the case of South Florida, but across the board and nationwide and in the world, you know, 
I think there are going to be solution spaces that are going to impact vulnerable um, other populations, marginalized frontline communities. And so I, I take every opportunity I can to make sure that we think about, I mean, we collectively, not you and I, but broader, broader policymakers think carefully about these issues going forward, because I think we are entering this phase where we're going to have to start thinking about solution space as well. Um, couple of other questions for you as we kind of draw to a close. What are, you, what are your next research projects? I want to kind of circle back to sort of, I mean, any anything new or exciting you're working on or anticipate working on just there, there in your day job? <laughs> I know you do a lot of other things within your day job there at the University of Miami. What are, what are your key projects or what's coming up? Yeah, there's one that, that I, I didn't mention before that I think is a kind of an, an interesting newer, newer phase of, of things for me to be working on, and it's with economists, and it's um, looking at what is the economic value of improved hurricane forecasts, and this is based on input from people along the coast, um, and to to get at the question of okay, here's here's the hurricane forecast improvement we've seen recently would you still be willing to pay more for continued improvement? And, you know, we, we have the question of how much improvement relative to what we've seen. Do you want even more aggressive? And would you be willing to pay even more for that? And, you know, so it's, it's, it's getting at this question of are, is, is, is the average person still content to be spending money on uh, hurricane forecast improvement and um, the the answer that's come out of it is yes they are uh, of course there's a lot more involved in that but the answer is yes people still would say yes I think my tax dollars are very well spent on improving hurricane forecast so it's kind of a, a neat project to get into yeah I'm, I look forward to that uh, one final question. I mean, you're known for your weather and hurricane work, but you've been tracking COVID uh, quite carefully as well uh, in, in your in your uh, your social media sites. And we have an internal project we're kicking off here at the University of Georgia with a group of infectious disease scientists looking at the epidemiology of extreme hurricanes and the COVID-19 environment. Um, mm -hmm. One, um, as you've been monitoring carefully COVID numbers and as we're recording this in around December, the country's going through, I guess, this third surge and it's probably the worst one yet. Um, did it ever sort of, did you ever think about the juxtaposition of say these extreme hurricanes uh, this year and COVID and the challenge, unique challenges that created? Yes. Um, and that's, that's really, I, Having not had a, a major hurricane uh, situation right here, I didn't get to, uh, you know, to, to witness how that played out. But in the places that people did have to, to evacuate from or got impacted by and didn't evacuate, but then were kind of, you know, left without electricity and limited resources, is how do you plan to evacuate and contain evacuees, but also have them not make this problem so much worse by then everyone's sick with COVID, uh, which <laughs> it's, that definitely was a complicating factor this season. And I know here at the University of Miami, it was something that the emergency managers 
looked at closely going into it is what do we do if because um, it's th those two are exactly at odds with each other when you think of an, an evacuation or an emergency sh sh shelter that's literally a crowd of people crunched into an enclosed space for days at least um, in the conditions that people tend to get sick from anyway. <laughs> it's just not, you know, it's, it's not a great situation to be in, but it's what you do to escape an even worse one. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, it's, I, I, I think what people ended up doing was maybe trying to not have to be at a shelter if they could help it, you know, to try to find a friend's place and not be as in concentrated of, of a space. Um, and I am not aware of any stories or, or, you know, actual events where there was say a COVID outbreak within a, uh, hurricane shelter. I, I'm not saying there that didn't happen. I'm just not aware of it. Yeah, no, I think it's just one of these interesting things that going forward as we even transition into the spring severe weather season, uh, and evacuation shelters in the Midwest and the South and so forth as it relates to the Great Plains, as it relates to tornadoes. I just think it's just one of those additional sort of compound complexities and, that we are dealing with right now. Unfortunately, we've got to draw this conversation to a close. I knew it was going to be fascinating. Uh, Brian, <laughs> where can people find you on social media? Sure. Um, it's at, at B. McNoldy on t t Twitter. Um, and uh, you mentioned my blog that's uh, bmcnoldy.blogspot.com yeah and i highly recommend that you check that blog out and follow him um, amazing information uh before we get out of here it's time for the geek of the week it's that time of the show we like to highlight a scientist superstar great geologist or weather weenie at the end of every podcast this episode's geek of the week is someone that weather twitter is very familiar with Zachary Labe. He is a postdoc at the Colorado State University with a focus on Arctic sea ice. Odds are you've seen one of his wonderful, albeit frightening, graphical displays of our shrinking sea ice that is leading to our sea level rise that we discussed today. And by the way, as we're taping this, the new Arctic report card just came out. Uh, Dr. Labe is definitely a true weather geek. Now, if you or someone you know is a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, be sure to check out our social media pages. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. My pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, it was a great, great conversation. And thank you all for continuing to listen to the podcast. We'll see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.